important time in God's purpose and plan and our annual rehearsal of His purposes as the Passover comes on, which is the first uh, holy time of the new year in terms of holy days. Every weekly Sabbath is a holy time, of course, but uh, the Passover is almost upon us. That being Monday, this coming Monday at 8 o'clock. Sundown's about 7.59 here uh, that evening, so try to come a little early and be settled and prepared by 8 o'clock. And speaking of the Passover, which is so imminent, only two days away, you might recall last week's sermon in which I admonished us to examine ourselves, not each other, but ourselves, because that's what the Scripture tells us to do. And Paul said, examine yourself, whether or not you be in the right attitude, the right approach, the right mentality, the right spiritual condition to take the Passover, and not to take it in a flippant or light manner, but to take it with a very, very serious mind, because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And without Christ as our Passover, uh, we're all doomed to eternal death. So He is there as our Savior to bring us out of that and loved us so much He was willing to give up being God to come down and become a man and die, as we all do. So He is our example. He is our standard Somebody will tell me once in a while, well, that's your standard. No, it's the Bible standard. It's what Christ's standard was that we are to follow and whatever is in His Word. And most people today will not look at His Word. They won't study His whole Word. They won't try to live by every word of God, but only those portions of the Scripture that they seem to like if they care about God at all. So, Here we are approaching the Passover, only two days away, and what kind of feelings do you have? What's going on in your mind? What's going on with your emotions as we pass this very, very solemn time to come as we approach it? Probably only two days rival each other in solemnity, and that would be Passover and Atonement. All the other holy days, of course, are very, very important, but those two represent the possibility of being the wife of Christ and Atonement pictures becoming at one with Him. So those are key and pivotal times. And here the Passover is coming. We're warned that we're not to sin, we're warned to be like Christ and follow His footsteps, and yet we find that we are still human. I said, go to Galatians 5, read the works of the flesh, compare them to the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and to go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about the attitudes there that Christ would have us have. And I hope that we all considered those scriptures this past week. But that being the case, how'd you do? 
Uh, how, how did we come out in that examination and that analysis comparing ourselves to God? Comparing ourselves to ourselves, we might come out okay, you know. But comparing ourselves to God, we find we're still very, very much in trouble. If we're honest about it, not self-deceiving. So, can you approach Passover in faith and in confidence and in hope? Or do we kind of come up to it thinking, man, I don't deserve this. Uh, How can this be? And then we also throw in the thought that this possibly is the most important Passover that there has been since the original where Christ died for our sins on Passover. Maybe it rivals in some ways the one where they came out of Mitzrayim or Egypt, which was a time when God brought them out with a mighty hand. But I think you could set aside Exodus 12 and that Passover, and then certainly above that comes Christ being the Passover, And thirdly, then, would be the Passover that begins to turn around things and God begin to work with His church in a very direct way again, right here at the end of this age. And this very possibly is that Passover. We see Matthew 24 being fulfilled all around us. Wars and rumors of wars. I just read this morning that... There's another build-up in the Middle East, and uh, Iran has put a bunch of vessels to guard the Strait of Hormuz, put some missiles in there, and a Russian, major Russian, I don't know whether it's an an aircraft carrier or what, but a major Russian vessel is just outside the gates of Hormuz, and the U.S. has ordered all of their military and important personnel out of Iraq. You know, we're so busy with the virus that we forget all these other things are going on in the world. But there's wars and rumors of wars. And there is a considerable thought that this virus is being overreported, that they're attributing deaths to it that are really from other causes, because it is being used by the powers that be in our shadow government to bring in martial law, to bring in the United Nations, and to prepare us to be uh, destroyed, which we know from the Scriptures is going to happen. So, all these things are lining up right now, and they're becoming very, very real to us. So it appears that this very well could be the turnaround. The financial collapse is getting more and more obvious and Uh, imminent as every day goes by. So, those are the things that proceed just before God gathers His people. And if we're going to be gathered before all this comes down, it may have to be this year. So, this is very possibly a very, very important Passover above all that we have ever had before. Are you ready? Are you ready? Maybe upon us. 
here we are. Isaiah 3, verse 2 says, Children are oppressors, and women rule over us. We've got children in our government today. Basically, they maybe have gray hair, some of them, but they're children. And then you have the women who are ruling over us, like Diane Feinstein and Hillary and Nancy and occasional Cortex, what's her name, OAC and the squad, uh, basically telling us what to do. And they're being handled by the ones really in charge behind the scenes, the big bankers and so on. So here we are with this scenario coming down upon us. And you and I are facing Passover. And maybe we need to understand some things about this Passover that is coming. We find if we examine ourselves, we're still very, very human, don't we? We find that we're not deserving of the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God. Uh, because we really aren't. I mean, Paul, if it was Paul who wrote it back in Hebrews 5.12, says we've come to a time when you ought to be teachers. And he says, and yet here we need to learn the very principles of Christianity. Uh, you know, how long have we been part of God's church? 30, 40, 50, 60 years, some of us. And we still have trouble with the basics, faith, hope, and love. Especially love, which is the most important thing. We have trouble coming to have the love of God for Him and for mankind as well. I wanted to mention one other thing in relationship to where we are. You know, there's scriptures about a beast and a false prophet arising here at the end. And I read an article this morning, which I wanted to include here, uh, to show that we are at the very imminent time when these things are beginning to show. They're beginning to shape up. Pope Francis, we've called him, of the Catholic Church, has deleted Vicar of Christ from his title. Vicar of Christ meant standing in place of, or holding a chair for, or uh, representing Christ. It had a lot of different meanings. But he's gotten rid of that title now. So if he's not standing in for Christ, who is he? Well, it opens the door for Revelation 13 and some of those scriptures back there to be fulfilled, where he comes as the Antichrist, in place of Christ directly, Christ isn't ruling anymore, he's saying. He is. And he gave up his title of Francis. You know, when a new pope comes in, they always take a new title. They forget their own name, and they're called Pope Pius, or Pope Pius II, or... <laughs> or Innocent the First and Innocent the Second, or whatever they take. Well, he took Francis. I think he'll turn out to be a talking mule of some variety. But he has just gotten rid of the term, or the name, Francis. And this article pointed out, John 5, I think I'll turn back there and read that so you see it. John 5, verse 42. But I know you, 
that you have not the love of God in you. I am speaking to the Pharisees and the leaders of that day. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. So Christ could come in his own Father's name, and they wouldn't receive me. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Now what does it say about the Antichrist at the end? He comes in place of Christ. He is going to be received by the whole world, except those few who will not take the mark of the beast. He comes as a false prophet. He comes as if he were Christ. And he's coming, if this is the man, in his own name. And they will believe him. Well, his name is George, Jorge. And Bartolo, Bartolo or something like that, I forget exactly. He's either Brazilian or Argentinian, I believe. I don't remember which for sure. But he's taken back his own name that he grew up with instead of Francis or Vicar of Christ. So he's coming in his own name at this point, And the world is going to believe him. Now I've wondered whether... The Antichrist would come from the Catholic Church or maybe from out of left field somewhere unexpectedly. And yet if our scholars were right years ago, Simon Magus there of Acts 7 or 8 uh, is the one who started the Catholic Church in place of God's church that he had established through Peter and James and John and has been in opposition to God's truth ever since through the Catholic Church. And indeed, the whole Protestant world broke off from the Catholic Church. Basically, all Christianity there is today came from the Catholic Church through the Protestant Reformation, except the true Church, which there have been a few believers in and followers of since Christ was here. Not very many through the ages, but a resurgence here at the end. So all these things are happening in this world. And what about us then who understand the truth? Where are we? What happens? I'll quote Exodus 9.5 to you. I won't turn back there to that one. But it's in those chapters leading up to the Passover in Exodus 12 where the uh, plagues were coming upon Egypt or Mithraim. And God said there, there is a set time when the cattle will all die of the Egyptians. Won't hurt the Israelite cattle, but a set time. So, there's a clue. God sets a time for certain events to take place. Do you think that Christ was born of Mary? At just any old time? Was Isaac born to Abraham and Sarah at just any old time? Or did God wait until he was ready and it fit perfectly within his time frame for all things and then he told them in a set time next year Isaac will be born. So God was involved in the conception and 
through the birth, I mean the, the pregnancy, he wasn't going to come early, he wasn't going to come late, he was going to come at the set time. So God is right on time. When he said he would give us 6,000 years, he meant it. When he said his plan and purpose would last 7,000 years, he meant it. And then he himself extended it to an eighth day, or the second resurrection, to allow other people who had already lived, not continuing, but already had lived, to be offered an opportunity. So that became a part of the time. But man's time here was essentially given as 7,000 years. Now, I've given you a chart showing some end time timeline that I believe is correct. I was thinking about it a little bit this morning, and it occurred to me that this end time work so far has been a microcosm of the 7,000 year plan for mankind. Now, I've already said and shown you the scriptures where the church is going to become a microcosm for the millennium here at the end. We've seen that established in prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, but I hadn't taken it back to Herbert Armstrong's calling and seen how this works out. Now, realize that God ultimately established about 70 years for mankind to live. Started out around 1,000, went to 500 to 250, and then down to 70. And that's where it's been now for several thousand years. We live approximately 70 years. He says, if by reason of strength you live longer, that's a bonus. But about 70 years. And that's where we've been. Well, consider that 70 years is 170th, or is 1%, excuse me, 1% of 7,000. So he set our lifetime to represent his plan. About 70 years we would live. Now, he didn't make it specific. He didn't say you're all going to live to your 70th birthday and die. But he said it as a general thing that it would represent 1% of 7,000. Now, let's take that and compare it to Herbert Armstrong's understanding in the beginnings of his ministry, 1926 through 1927. His time of learning and preparation to do the work. So God began working with him specifically. I'm sure he had worked with him earlier in his life and what he had gone through. But as far as preparing him for the end time work, it started in 1926 and 27. Now you fast forward 60 years, and he died in 1986, 70 years later. Or I mean 60 years later, excuse me. 27, 26 to 86 is 60 years. Now, when you consider the plan of God, 7,000 years, or the weekly cycle, seven days, six days are for man to do his thing. 6,000 years were for man and Satan to do their thing. The seventh is the Sabbath. 
we represent it every week and keep it as we are today as a type of what shall be in the reign of Christ with peace and safety for everyone. So, we had 60 years under Herbert Armstrong and he died. He died and the church began to fall apart, didn't it? How does that represent the seventh thousand years? How does that represent the Sabbath? Well, frankly, it doesn't. But it should have. That's the point. We went through 60 years, which represented a message to mankind, a message to this nation, that it ignored. And after 60 years of it, when he died, the church began to ignore it from the top down. So instead of turning to God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul at his death, we went on in Laodiceanism and fell apart and died after 70 years. By 96, I think you can say the church, Sardis, died. It was dead. So it lasted about 70 years and died. And never did turn to God. So that ten years from Herbert Armstrong's death to 96 should have represented a Sabbath of life to us, but instead we went the wrong way. Sixty years he preached, and it should have been the end of man's listening and doing his thing and turning to God to keep his Sabbath, but they didn't. And the nation went on into perverseness. So that 70 years that he allotted here at the end was preaching, ignoring the preaching by both the world and the church. And we were destroyed and died. In 96... After 70 years, he sent a message of hope out of the minor prophets and all the other prophets. A message that ultimately will lead to a regathering of his people and a microcosm of the true Sabbath the way it should have been. So, after 70 years, a message of hope started in Isaiah 41. Comfort my people that their warfare is accomplished, and that there is good news coming. Now, that message went on, and in 2017, I think God gave the formal sentence on our, on our nation of Israel, both Israel and the Jews. When that eclipse went across the earth, or across America, at noon, in July or August of 2017, that was God's passing of judgment. And then he said there in Ezekiel 7, it won't be immediate as soon as the 430 years and the 70 years of building homes in uh, Babylon is over and a warning given. 
but it is come, it is near, it is near. And then I've showed you those places where it says the third year, or in the third year, he will revive his work and start things over. I would put it this year, the third year since that judgment was given. That was the formal pronunciation of not going to have any more to do with you. Your destruction is now set. End of 4.30 from Roanoke till 2017. Those 430 days of, of uh, Ezekiel laying on his side for both houses. And the 70 years in which the church was here. And nobody paid any attention. And then God is going to set us free to rebuild the church, to regather, and to build the latter temple. Now let's understand. Let's go to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Let's understand where we very well are, or very likely are, because he lays it out pretty, pretty plainly here. Psalm 102. Now, this begins with a prayer. And this is a prayer that you and I have prayed many times, or something very similar to it over these last uh, years that we've been going through the scattering the Laodiceanism and the spewing. Hear my prayer, O Eternal, and let my cry come to you. Hide not your face from me in the day when I am in trouble. And he did say he's hidden his face from us, didn't he? In several different prophecies. So this is a prayer about this situation we find ourselves in. And we haven't seen any relief, really, so far, have we? No? We still pray and we still go in confusion. We still are in frustration. We still don't see all these promises I've read to you out of the Scriptures coming to pass. Hasn't happened. We're still waiting. We're wondering, could this be the Passover? I'm in trouble. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me speedily. We don't want an answer a long way off. We want an answer now. We want an answer speedily. We don't like to wait for answers to our prayers. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned as in hearth. He said there'd be old men who could see the new or the latter church once it's built as being a glorious thing. Well, so here we are. We're old. We're sick. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Isn't the message there in Isaiah 40? What is the message? All grass, all life is as grass. It's withered and dies. Speaking of the nation as a whole, but it's also speaking of the church. Because here we are, old and unable to do anything much. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness, an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. A sparrow alone on the housetop is in danger of a sparrowhawk or other predators that might come along and snatch it away. My enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. Got some of those living... Next door to us. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. 
Hasn't this been a lot of our feelings the last 20-some years? Sure has been mine. Because of your indignation and your wrath, because he spewed us out and set his face against us and turned his face from us. For you have lifted me up, came into God's church, learned the truth, and that lifted us up. And now we've been cast down because we didn't keep it in the way that he wanted us to. My days are like a shadow that declines, and I'm withered like grass. <coughs> Sometimes some of you say, but I'm, I'm old and I'm crippled, or I'm old and I'm about to die, or whatever. Isn't that about where we are? <coughs> okay, let's go to verse 12. But you, O Eternal, shall endure forever. Here we are. Past 70, living by that extra strength, perhaps. But God lives forever. <coughs> and your remembrance is into all generations. You shall arise. That reminds me of Zechariah 2, where Christ stands up and begins to direct his church. You shall arise. And have mercy upon Zion. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time is come. We've been going through this, and our prayers have consisted of everything before verse 12 and 13. But he says he's going to arise and show mercy. And that this is a set time. Time, just like he set a time for Isaac to be born, a certain day. He set a specific time when the cattle of Egypt would die. He set a set time when Christ would be born. There was a set time when Christ would announce the Jubilee in Luke 4, so that we might know when the last Jubilee is, 1900 years later. All these things were done with a specific purpose and time in mind. So, for Christ to rise off his throne and show mercy on Zion, the church, and on this area, <coughs> and to favor her again, is a set time. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. Basically, all that's left is no stone upon another, a bunch of stones laying around, and the dust that is left from what was the church. Doesn't this fit today perfectly? So the heathen shall fear the name of the Eternal and all the kings of earth your glory. When the Eternal shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory." He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. So he's talking about the time when he rises, he turns his face to us and smiles upon us, shows favor at a set time, and then he will answer our prayers. And he will not despise them anymore. It's a set time that this will occur. Do we at this point know when that time is? 
Could it possibly be this Passover? When we see all these things happening in the world that Matthew 24 talks about, when we see maybe the false prophet taking his own name and maybe beginning to rise, when they're talking about converting cash because it's filthy and diseased into digital so that you have to have a chip in your hand or your forehead in order to buy and sell. That's on the table now. They're talking about it openly now. The Chinese are already burning currency and switching to a digital monetary form. These things we've read about all these years are here. They're coming about. As we sit here today, Americans are dying of pestilence. And it won't be long until there's famine and more pestilence. Is the set time to favor the church here? Very, very possibly. Are we ready for it? Let's go to the book of Malachi, because it is the final book of the Minor Prophets series, which was written, first of all, to the church, and then secondarily to the physical nation of Israel and Judah. And Malachi is a burden, says in the first, the second word. The burden of the eternal Israel by Malachi. And he says he loved Israel and he hated Esau because of the different attitudes that were there and because of everything he was going to do. And he goes on down and talks to the priests in verse 6 and on down and how we've offered polluted bread upon his altar. And he's talking here primarily and first of all to the church. Now, we all went through that time when the church was coming apart, when we turned to Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1 and 2, where he lays down a very heavy indictment against the ministry of the worldwide church of God here at the end time. Because it was Laodicean, because it was dying, because it was not giving the people what the people needed, either by word or by example. And you and I were part of that. I was certainly part of that. And I'm ashamed of it. That I wasn't what I should have been and I got spewed like everybody else. We need to all understand that. That we were the Laodiceans. So he's talking to us here. He's not talking to the Methodists, the Baptists. It was his altar, God's altar, that we offered polluted bread upon. And he goes on and on about it. I'm not going to take time to go through there. We've been through it before. Uh, he says, though, in verse 12, the table of the eternal is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even its food or meat, is contemptible. And what a weariness it had become, in verse 13, to God. Then he goes on down and addresses the priests uh, specifically in chapter 2. This commandment is for you, if you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory to my name, I will even send a curse upon you and curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed you them already, because you do not lay it to heart. We were going through the motions. 
But we didn't have our heart. We didn't have zeal, fervency, fire for God. And he can't stand lukewarmness. So he spewed us out. I'll corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. Our seed is our children who went back into the world, basically. Even the dung of your solemn feasts. He can't handle our vacation time holidays at the feasts. Where we didn't go to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. We went to party and to eat out and to go to the beach and make a vacation of it. This whole thing he hated. And he's blown it out. Now, doesn't this remind you a little bit of Elijah's life? Where Israel had departed and the priests of God had become priests of Baal? They weren't following God. They were following their own way. They were making their own gods. They had denied and forgotten the true God. And we began to worship the God of materiality, the God of self, idolatry, so that we might go to His feasts and enjoy it for ourselves. It's vacation time. Go on cruises, for crying out loud, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. How sick can it get? Didn't God send Elijah to condemn those? And to cut their heads off? Now he tells us in chapter 4 here, last verse, or last two verses, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's not John the Baptist. That's just before the day of the Lord. Here at the end time. Now Malachi was used to make an indictment against the ministry. And... That is to be repeated here at the end. But the ministry of the church of God have become followers of Baal. Not followers of God. And what is going to happen to them? 90% are going to die in the tribulation. They're going to be killed. And the job is to preach Malachi to them and tell them what's about to happen. Isn't that what Elijah did? He told them what was going to happen, and then God didn't answer them, and He killed them. Those curses are to be pronounced here at the end time against the church. So here we are <clears throat> with this circumstance. Now I want to turn on back to chapter 3. Uh, we could go on here about how we've not we've been treacherous against the church, in a sense, the wife of our youth. Uh, Israel is married to God, and they went out and whored after other gods. And we were the church of God, betrothed to be the bride of Christ, and here we're out chasing around as polygamists, seeking other gods of materialism, of self, whatever it might be. And he says, don't do that. But we have. Now, we read in Psalm 102 how there is a set time when God will favor Zion and have mercy and turn his face back to us, as Isaiah says in more than one place. 
Notice this in chapter 3. When all this paganism and lack of zeal and polluted bread has occurred. We're at the end of that now. We've gone through death throes of the church. We've gone through Laodiceanism and the time to repent. Now you and I, as we approach Passover, are still wrestling with this. We know that we do not live by every word of God. We know that we do not walk in His every step. We know that we still have sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes, sinful actions. We know we fall short of the glory of God, and we still sin because we're still human. You know, I look at myself and I think, I don't know whether you're any different than you were 60 years ago. Should have overcome some, should have grown some. Maybe we all have grown some. I hope we have in these last years in Laodiceanism. And you know, the thing is, I'm still just as human as I ever was. Just as human as ever I was. Are you half spirit now? You know, you're you're half transformed into spirit? No, you may have the Spirit of God within your heart and mind, but you're not part God yet. It comes in a moment in the twinkling of an eye from very human to very God. So there's no in-between stage there. There is the incubation period in which through the Spirit of God feeding us, we are to become mature enough as followers of Christ that He sees fit in His mercy to give us grace and forgiveness so that we can be changed in a moment, the twinkling of an eye. Because we'll be human up until the time we die or are changed. And that will not change. Now, if you get discouraged, which you can when you read what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, examine yourself. And you know what if you do? If you do it honestly, you're going to find yourself wanting. And therefore, you will approach the Passover with a certain amount of trepidation that you're not totally in the right attitude, right frame of mind, that your life isn't what it ought to be. And there's a certain fear attached to that because of how important and how serious it is. So we're to approach it with faith and confidence that Christ will forgive us, and yet on the other hand, we are still suspect. So it is a combination of a certain fear along with faith. We fear we're not up to scratch. We fear we don't qualify. We fear, why would He forgive me? I look at us as a group, and I say, why would God favor us any more than any other group anywhere else? We still have our human nature. We still have self-righteousness and idolatry and envy and jealousy and hate and lack of love. We still have those things, do we not? 
We're a, lo- we're a long ways from what we ought to be. Now, Malachi is an end-time book, and he starts out with the first two chapters showing how he despises the way we've been, and to some degree then still are, inevitably. Now, that's frustrating. That's like the prayer in 102 of Psalms. Why don't you answer? Please hear. Answer speedily. I'm about dried up. I've about had it. And then he says, but there's a set time when I'll arise and show favor on Zion and have mercy. A set time. Now let's compare that thought with Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. So God is sending a message somewhere that is preparing the way for Christ to do what He said He would do in Psalm 102, and what He says He's going to do right here. I'll send a messenger. It's what He did with Elijah, what He did with John the Baptist, what He's going to do with the end time Elijah. Prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, that's the one we pray to, the one we seek, the one we wish for, will suddenly come to his temple. The temple is his church. He will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, is Christ not the one who brought the message of the new covenant? He's the one we look to. He's the one who is the ultimate messenger, the first messenger. But he sends somebody ahead to prepare the way because he's the only one that can really do something about what we are. He's the only one that can. Of yourself, you can do nothing. Through him, you can do anything. We are helpless and powerless on our own. Only by the Spirit of God can we accomplish anything spiritually. So we seek that messenger, and he will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. Now a question is posed, which is the question I've been asking you since the start of this sermon. What if he comes on Passover suddenly to his temple? What if he does? You ready for that? You ready for Acts 2 to come? He's got a set time, and he's going to come suddenly to his church. Who may abide the day of his coming? You? Me? Man, I think I just fall on my face. I can't abide the day of his coming. He's holy and righteous, and I'm unholy and unrighteous. How can I stand? Who shall stand when he appears? This is a prophecy about the end time, brethren. I'll show that to you. He's going to suddenly come to his temple, 
And who thinks they can stand when he appears? That's scary business. It's going to happen to his church. Somewhere, somehow, some way. Here at the end. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the eternal an offering in righteousness. Now, he's just given us two chapters back here of how unrighteous and how polluted we have been. Now he's giving us a cup full of hope in chapter 3. Because he is going to arise at the set time, come suddenly to his temple, and he is going to fix it. We are not fixed today. We still have a long way to go. But doesn't Zechariah 2 say he is going to come and dwell with us? And he will sit as a purifier among us. Will we not be fed and led by the two witnesses? Zechariah 4. It says they will give the golden oil to the seven churches. The remnant that come together. That God stirs to come to be taught. Do you think all these people scattered to the four corners of the earth today that were the church? Or what they ought to be? Do you think they have everything they need? All the knowledge? Do you think they're perfect in character? Not by any means. Remember the parable of the virgins? They all woke up. Some had oil and some didn't have oil. Well, the church won't have the oil it needs. But he says there in Zechariah 4, that the two will give oil to the church, all seven of them, all seven of the candlesticks. They'll get right teaching. They'll be brought up to speed. They'll be shown what they need to change, how they need to be to be a part of the latter temple instead of that which was scattered. You're getting a little bit of it here, but there's a whole lot more of it that has to be taught to a lot of people. And even though you've been hearing it for years, you still aren't what you need to be. And I'm not either. So when he comes suddenly to his temple, he's going to dwell with us, Zechariah 2. And he is going to teach us and refine us and purify us. I don't know in exactly what way, but we do know it's going to be through the two who teach all seven churches. They're going to be brought up to speed. And told what they need to do. And they're going to do it. Because you see, we have our self-righteousness. And how much is it worth? Filthy rags. That's all. The best you'll ever get is a filthy rag. A used menstruous cloth is what is inferred there. That's the best you'll get working on it on your own. Now, hopefully, we've been getting washed a bit through His Spirit to this point. 
But we still have a long way to go. But we have a promise here that when he returns to us, this isn't talking about his second coming. Not at all. This is coming to the church to purify it. Now, if he's talking about his second coming when the righteous rise to meet him in the air, they're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. They will have already been purified. They will have already been taught. They will have already repented. They will have been given grace and mercy and favor and forgiveness and their sin will no more be mentioned to them because they'll be changed just like that into spirit. So when he comes in, it's not to purify. It's to resurrect and glorify. Now here, he says, I'm going to come to my church and I'm going to make sure I'm going to be on the ground there with you. I will dwell with you. And I will see that you get the teaching you need. Just a precedent. Didn't he suddenly come to Saul on the road? And what did he do? He fell on his face and he was blinded. And Christ spent three and a half years with him in the desert, teaching him what he needed to know. He's going to come suddenly to his church here at the set time and favor her again. But who's ready for it? None of us. None of us are ready for it. But we have hope in that he loves us enough and cares enough for us that he's going to send us teachers and he is going to be here himself and underwrite every bit of it. And we will become what we should have been and fell short of. Because he will see to it. So, if you approach the Passover this year with some trepidation, realize that even though we're not what we ought to be, we're working at it, but we're not there. He's coming to give us help. We've struggled. I wrote down some scriptures here. We've struggled. Uh, I think it's Isaiah. I think it's 29. Or is it 26? I'll find it here as I turn back to, to Isaiah. Twenty-nine it is. Isaiah twenty-nine. Well, we've read this before. I've quoted it probably many times, but in this context, I want us to look at it again. Um, verse 13. Well, that's not the one I wanted. Oh, that's Jeremiah. Where's Isaiah here? That was one in... 26. There it is. I found it. My notes are really organized. Chapter 26 of Isaiah, uh, in verse 5. For he brings down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low. 
That's what we're seeing happening now. New York City is being laid low by a virus. There's 155, I think, died last night or yes, in the last 24 hours or whatever it is. Uh, brings it down. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Uh, verse 9, With my soul have I desired you in your might in the night. Yes, with my spirit within me will I seek you early, for when the judgments come, we're to be seeking him early. And he says in Hosea that we will seek him early. He's going to ordain peace for us in verse 12. But let's go on down here. Because he uses the analogy in verse 17. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain. Now, I can remind us again of Isaiah 7, where God gives that prophecy that after about 65 years, Ephraim will be destroyed, that it not be a people. And as we sit here today, Ephraim now is being destroyed, that it be not a people. We're practicing social distancing. We're practicing a takeover of communism. We're allowing it. We're having our freedoms taken away. We no longer are a nation united under the Constitution. The Constitution's been done away with by the women and children who rule over us. And we are coming apart and about to be totally and utterly destroyed. Just like Isaiah 7 says. And he said, I'll send a sign that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child who turns out to be Christ. In other words, we bring forth Christ in our character, in our actions. We bring Him forth. The world isn't bringing forth Christ in its life, is it? We're the only ones that have a chance. And he says that's a sign that this virgin will conceive the church. Paul called those people at Corinth virgins in Christ. Their sin, their pollution... Whatever they had done was wiped away. So here he says, a virgin, the church, will conceive and bring forth Christ. That's the sign. That's what we're to be doing. Maybe we're not doing as good a job at it as we should, so he's going to suddenly come. She's the one that he comes to in his maturity, not just as a child. We're supposed to be bringing forth him in character, as a beginning, beginning Christians, as a babe, and then grow in maturity. He'll come mature, suddenly to his temple, and refine it. But let's go on here in Isaiah 26. We're like a woman that draws near the time of her delivery. Isn't that where we are today? We're, we're close the set time is perhaps upon us even. So it's almost time to deliver, to show Christ in our lives. She is in pain. It's been painful to examine myself this week. How about you? And cries out in her pangs, like the prayer in Psalm 102 or Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9. So have we been in your sight, O Eternal. 
We've been here in pain, trying to deliver, and it's been difficult. We've been with child, we've been in pain, we were, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We've strained and we've strained and could only pass gas. Is as close as we've come to producing Christ in the way that He wants to be produced. We brought forth the wrong thing. When a woman is straining to give birth, she often passes gas. Now, God's pretty plain here. We might say crude or rude, but this is God speaking. He says, that's the best you've been able to do. We have not worked any deliverance in the earth. Has the church been delivered? Is the church under great blessing now? Have we received grace and mercy in the wilderness, as he's going to do with the seven churches in Isaiah 41? Has that happened? Have the people gathered? Nope. All of our efforts have been nothing but a fart. That's about all we've produced. We're still here. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So he's talking about the time when this nation is about to fall. He said there in Isaiah 7, when Christ appears to the church, that Ephraim is about to fall. And the next thing in chapter 7 is the coming of the Assyrian to destroy Ephraim. So we're at that time. They're planning right now an invasion from the south, the Chinese, and so are the Russians, and so are the Iranians. It's all right before us. So he says, here we've done nothing but pass gas, and the inhabitants of the world have not yet fallen. But it is imminent, is what he's saying. It's time for us to produce Christ. And he's going to have to come suddenly to us, and purify us, and help us, and teach us, so that we might become what He intends us to be. He says He will bring His righteousness to us. Isaiah 54 says it won't be your righteousness anymore, but His righteousness. So as weak and small and sinful as we may be, there's an answer coming. Through the oil that will be poured out upon us, the right teaching from His ministry, to Himself being here to dwell with us and to make sure we get the point in the picture. And the world is about to fall. Your dead man shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing. Didn't Sardis, didn't the church die? We're dead men. This confirms... Revelation 3. Died. Awake and sing, you that dwell in dust. No stone upon another, and in the dust, as Psalm 102 said. For your dew is the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. They're casting out the dead now in the morgues across this country who have died of this virus. This is a now prophecy. What does he say then in verse 20? Let's prove that. Come, my people, enter you into the chambers, your chambers, 
and shut your doors about you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. <clears throat> for behold, the Eternal comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Can't bury them all. Here we are. This is it. The time for God to protect His people has to be because the nation is dying now and it's going to increase and get worse and worse and worse. Maybe not from this one virus, but from everything. Famine and pestilence and, war and sword and captivity. It's all coming. And it started. It's here. So if He is going to arise and punish... He also says He's going to arise and purge and teach and refine His people. Come and dwell with us. This is going to happen. Let's go to Joel 2 for a moment. We've read this many times, but let's pick up a point here we might overlook. Hosea Joel, chapter 2. Time of great danger when we have an overpowering army coming as locusts is the setting of Joel. The end of the age. And he sends us a warning. But then in verse 21 he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Eternal will do great things. So in the midst of this destruction of our nation, he's going to do great things for his people. Don't be afraid, beasts of the field, of the pastures of the wilderness spring. That's where it's going to happen, is in the wilderness, Isaiah 41. And produce fruit. Verse 23, in the midst of all this destruction, then he says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Eternal, your God, for He has given you the former rain moderately, and He will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. The floor shall be full of wheat, and all of these things are going to be restored. Verse 26, you'll eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people will never be ashamed. Notice verse 27 then. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and <clears throat> that I am the Lord your God and none else, and you'll not be ashamed. Now, he says that the two witnesses there in Zechariah 4 will pour out the golden oil, the Spirit of God, for the people. And then down here it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, not all flesh of the world, but your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And the day of the Lord comes. What do you think that's going to be like? When He suddenly comes to His temple, and He begins to purify it, and give it what it needs, and to build the latter temple in glory... What are those dreams and visions going to be about? Will they be revelations 
of the blessings He's giving? Will some of our kids say, God's going to bless us here, God's going to bless us there? It's going to be dreams and visions of good things. Not visions and dreams of bad things. It's going to confirm the Scriptures, all these prophecies. Where they'll say, oh, this was written back here in Isaiah. It's going to happen tomorrow, Dad. I don't know exactly how it will come down. But everybody is going to be filled with zeal and excitement. That God is actually doing these things He said all this time He's going to do. The set time He's come. He will suddenly come to His temple. He will get these things done. He will give us His righteousness. He will be in the midst of us. He'll come and dwell with us. Notice Isaiah 66 now in terms of this birth analogy again. He says, we strained and strained and brought forth wind. That's the best we could do. Here, verse 5 of 66. Hear the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at His word. I hope that's us. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for My name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified, but He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple going to preach from the temple of God, the true church of God from the heights of Zion, Jeremiah 31 says. A voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. Now we get back to that analogy. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Now there's a direct contrast to us straining and straining and not getting anything done. But he says in Isaiah 7, she will produce Christ. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. There's going to come a change where things are suddenly different. Instead of straining to be what we ought to be, it will come to pass when He comes and purifies us. It'll come to pass. Who has heard such a thing? Do you ever see anybody just suddenly bring forth a child with no pain or no delivery of any kind? Who's seen it? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? Suddenly? <coughs> For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. We've been laboring to bring forth. It hasn't happened. But he says suddenly it's going to change. And over a Passover, if you read Isaiah 52, 53, and 54, it says signs and wonders will come. The two will see eye to eye. The Passover comes. And then the gathering of the church comes in chapter 54. So suddenly it turns around. And it seems to be at Passover time. Because Isaiah 53, about all Christ went through, is right there. Is it not? And then it says, expand your tent. The people are coming. And he says at the last verse of that chapter, it'll be my righteousness, not yours. In one day, it says, notice that. Suddenly. Suddenly, all we've been working for is going to become easy. It won't be hard anymore. We'll have grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. 
Because Christ will be here with us. And He will have trained and sent teachers to be here with us, to feed us and lead us. Everything's going to change. It's going to be different. At a set time. The set time of Passover when they came out of Egypt was exact. To the day! 430 years to the day! Jacob came down on Passover. And they left on Passover. A set time. Do you think Passover is a set time? Isaiah 53 seems to say so. Soon as she travailed, she brought forth children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Eternal? Shall I come to bring forth and shut the womb, says the Eternal? Will all that straining and stuff you were doing go unrewarded? Here he says, suddenly it's going to become easy with the blessing of God, with Him pouring out His Spirit upon our sons and our daughters and them dreaming dreams and having visions of good for a change and blessing everywhere in our chambers where He says to go just as the world is about to fall. He will give protection and a wall of fire around us. Am I going to bring you forth and then shut the womb? No, he said, this is going to happen. It's real. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All you that love her, rejoice for joy with her. All you that mourn for her, that you may be suck and satisfied with the breast of consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory says we'll have wine and milk without money and everything we need in Isaiah 55 right after the gathering occurs. It's a beautiful thing. Didn't we just read in one day? Didn't we just read that? Suddenly in one day? Alright, go back to Zechariah 3. Here he says he's going to, verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men of sign and wonder. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. So he's going to use miracles, signs and wonders, and that is going to bring the branch, whom he's going to reveal as a result of that. The branch mentioned in other places in Isaiah. The right bough, the right branch will be revealed. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, (coughs) upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Christ is the stone of salvation. All eyes of the church will be on Him. Didn't He say back here in chapter 2, In that day you'll be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you, verse 11, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. He's going to come and dwell with us. We've read that two or three times already today. And I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Time of the two witnesses. Time of the end time. 
I'll remove the iniquity in one day. Now, have we seen the Passover come up? Where they were delivered in one day, exactly 430 years later. A set time. Perfect time. God's timing is going to be perfect again. He works in patterns. Will it happen at Passover time? First month it says for sure. And Isaiah 53 seems to indicate the Passover and then the gathering. Is this the Passover? Is this the one? Better fear and tremble. It could be. Because the inhabitants of the world are about to fall and we're going to need protection and be in our chamber right away. I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. That's not millennial. That's when he removes the iniquity of the church and turns and blesses it and comes to dwell with it and begins to protect it and take care of it when the world is coming apart all around us. Is Passover this year the set time for God to show mercy on Zion and deliver her and take care of her and suddenly come to His temple and purify her and cleanse her? What's more cleansing and purifying than Passover followed by the days of unleavened bread? where we become purified and put sin out and serve God with all our heart. We're going to find out real soon, one way or another.